Thanks for tuning into the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Eric Trexler. Eric has a PhD in human movement science and is a pro-natural bodybuilder and a sports nutrition researcher. Eric is also the Director of Education at Stronger by Science, as well as a reviewer for MASS, Monthly Applications in Strength Sports. Today, we're going to be talking all about the metabolic adaptations that occur when people lose weight. Let's talk science. Okay, so Eric... um can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, what do you do, um, and uh, kind of how did you how did you get into that? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, what I currently do is I am the director of education at Stronger by Science. I'm also a reviewer for Mass, which is monthly applications in strength sport. Uh, how I got there um, started when I was about 12 years old. Really liked lifting weights. Um, thought about a bunch of different things I could do as a career, but the further they got away from lifting weights, the more I hated them. So I just kind of stuck with what I liked. Uh, so I, I did some strength coaching, uh, when I was a college student, studied exercise science, did a master's, did a PhD. And, uh, and now I'm here. Fantastic. So, uh, I, since we're talking metabolic adaptation, I should also mention while I was doing all the education stuff. Uh, did a little bit of powerlifting, but a lot of bodybuilding, and now I'm also a, a pro natural bodybuilder. Okay, so that might have been a little bit of a, an impetus for you to get into that line of study. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, um, what you didn't mention is, you know, uh, along with being um, the director of education at Stronger by Science, is you are also um, the host of the internet's first internet podcast. Is that correct? Yeah, it's the first fitness podcast. And uh, I'm the only host, but I've been having a guest on every episode so far named Greg Knuckles, who is um, he's doing a really nice job so far. OK, um, just just out of curiosity, you, you mentioned like he's not actually a host. Like, do you have kind of some sort of a, a, a qualification or kind of some criteria that he needs to meet before he can graduate to host status or what's going on? Um, no, I mean, it's, uh, you know, my podcast, my rules, if I decide to take the plunge and make it a formal arrangement, then I will. But for now, I just want to make sure he's still performing well. Um, I don't want him to get too comfortable. Uh, so in, in order to keep his performance high, um, I'm going to keep him on kind of a week-to-week -week kind of deal. That's fair. I mean, you don't want to go into his head. No, no, not at all. <laughs> um, right. Besides, besides podcasts, um, and ju just on the podcast, everybody, you know, if you actually want to listen to what a good podcast, I can't recommend the Stronger by Science podcast enough because the the banter that you know yourself and Greg have is just phenomenal. Like, I I love listening to the show just for for the insights that you guys have, but I I, I keep coming back to the show just because you know it's fun listening to two of you. It's like listening to two best friends um, argue or or an old married couple, one or the other. Well, it's not like listening to two best friends arguing. <laughs> um, so, like, when Greg and I started working together, uh, we'd already been friends for years before that. Um, and I was, you know, considering my job options after I finished my Ph.D. Um, and we were just like, kind of makes sense. Might as well work together. Uh, so, yeah, it's the problem with um, the problem with re replacing Greg as the guest host is um, – yeah. I need to find someone who's also a close friend of mine who knows about exercise. And that is going to be difficult. Um, so in 
until that happens, I, I, I won't tell him this, but I think he does have a pretty solid uh, foothold on the position. Well, I, I, I can assure you he's not going to find that out because he's probably not going to be listening to this podcast unless he's a really, really good friend. No. And then he's like, oh, well, I want to check out what my, what my buddy's doing. Like, you know, um, but yeah, thanks for, um, no. thanks for agreeing with me there. <laughs> uh, so besides the podcast, um, I also understand that you are an adept uh, chef and um, some would call a master of uh, pulled chicken. Is that correct? I can do a lot of things with chicken. Yeah, chicken and oatmeal, I, I can turn into pretty much whatever you need. Anything, really. Okay, so because I understand that recently you uh, you kind of put that kind of those strong words uh, to the test um, against Greg with um, – a lasagna competition and like just in case anybody's not aware of what actually went down can you describe how you created this lasagna yeah so my lasagna is um a bold recipe uh there's a lot of it's an interesting interpretation on what lasagna could be um theoretically so i start with shredded chicken i add some some uh red sauce um some cheese, some cottage cheese. Um, it's really a different experience compared to what you're used to with lasagna. We did have uh, a cook-off the other day, and on Thursday on the podcast, we are going to share the results. Um, but the short version is that I won. The short version. So just from that description you gave, you said pulled chicken, like red sauce, tomato sauce, and cottage cheese. Um, I didn't. I didn't hear mention of like, pasta or um anything else <laughs> yeah so that's a really common misconception that a lot of people who aren't uh into cooking make so a huge mistake a lot of people think if you have lasagna you need noodles um the reality is there's no reason for that um it's kind of the lazy way out it's like when people um when people think they're good at cooking and it's just because they throw butter and sugar at every recipe. It's like, that's not the art of cooking. The art of cooking is when you make something from nothing. And when you have my lasagna, it's very clear that it is something. Very good. Um, just out of curiosity, did um, you, 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 I'm sure you tasted Greg's entry into the competition. Um, how did it, how did it taste? Was it okay? Was it you know, palatable? It tasted okay, but a lot of people got very ill. Okay, right. And at the end of the day, yeah, if you're if you're if you're killing somebody, um, that's probably you know a point against you. No one died, but there are a lot of very sick, okay. innocent people. Okay, right. Well, you've heard it here first. Don't eat at uh, Greg Knuckles' house. Um, all right. Um, okay. So today we're actually going to have um somewhat of a a, a sciencey conversation. Um, I promise everybody that. So we're going to talk about something that you're probably sick of speaking about at this point. Um, which is metabolic adaptation. Um, but before we, uh, we get into that, would you be able to kind of give people a little bit of an explanation of what metabolism actually is and what we mean um, by metabolism? Because I know it's a, it's a word that gets bandied about in like nutrition and fitness all the time. And I'm sure a lot of the people who use it don't quite fully understand what it means. So um, yeah, could you give us a little bit of a, a brief explanation or definition of what, what metabolism, metabolism is, please. So the, the definition that most people are interested in is, is when we're talking about metabolic rate. I mean, metabolism is an extremely broad term that basically just means how your body deals with stuff. 
I mean, anytime you have a drug, you have to metabolize that drug. Uh, any kind of uh, use of any substrate in the body is going to involve metabolism of that substrate. But when we talk metabolism in the kind of fitnessy space, we're talking about energy expenditure. And so, uh, you know, I, I've talked a lot about metabolic adaptation, as you mentioned. And um, when, we, when we talk about metabolic adaptation and metabolism, energy expenditure, what we're talking about is the total amount of calories that your body is burning in a given day. Uh, so some of that is going to be resting metabolic rate, which a lot of people consider their quote unquote metabolism. Uh, but there's a lot more to energy expenditure than just your resting metabolic rate. Um, there, there's certainly the calories you burn at rest, but there's also the calories you burn during exercise, the calories you burn in response to feeding, uh, which is the thermic effect of feeding, and then also the calories you burn while you're being active, but not necessarily exercising. And that's usually called non-exercise activity thermogenesis, uh, which conveniently makes the acronym NEAT. So when we talk about metabolism, we're usually talking about the convergence of those four subdivisions of metabolic rate that collectively make your total energy expenditure for the day. Okay, very good. So basically you're saying that we've got those four components which are making up um, uh, all of the energy that we expend. So it's you said that we had the exercise, uh, which was EAT. We had the NEAT. And would you be able to give us an example of, uh, of NEAT? Yeah, so NEAT basically is pretty much anytime you're moving and not training. So uh, going to get the mail in the morning, uh, taking the trash out, sweeping the floor, uh, if you're sitting in the chair and your foot is kind of twitching or fidgeting, um, really any of that would, would be considered uh, some type of activity that is not exercise. You mentioned that like with all those activities in NEAT, um, a lot of them sound like very, very small activities. And they, they kind of almost sound like that they wouldn't contribute a huge amount to somebody's energy expenditure. Is that the case or, 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 or what do you, what's your opinion on that? Uh, it really depends. Um, so some people have a, a really high a contribution of NEAT. Some people don't. Uh, it kind of just depends on exactly how sedentary you are. Um, but but I, I remember seeing one uh, review paper on the concept of NEAT uh, indicating that uh, from one person to another, the same exact body size, same biological sex, same age, everything all together, um, just depending on how sedentary they were, their NEAT for the day could vary by up to 2,000 calories per day. Wow. So it, it's, you know, we have these figures that show like the percentage breakdown of, you know, this is your resting metabolic rate and this is your, you know, 10% is your uh, thermic effect of feeding and all that stuff. But it, it really goes out the window when, when you consider the wide range of variability in how much energy you could theoretically expend either doing exercise or doing non-exercise activities. So, um, you know, th those different percentage breakdowns have some, they're, they're like a nice jumping off point uh, for the conversation, but there's so much variability there um, that it, it, it almost seems kind of silly to put a number on it because the variability can be so, uh, so expansive but but yeah certainly this could be a very 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 meaningful uh aspect of your um of your energy expenditure i mean we're talking about hundreds of calories uh per day okay fantastic um so we've kind of got a bit of an idea of what, what metabolism actually is in, in in the context of let's say the the world of fitness and energy expenditure um what then is 
metabolic adaptation because it's something that we're hearing about or we hear about relatively frequently um, in the world of fitness. What is metabolic adaptation um, and why, why is it such an issue when we're dieting? Yeah, so metabolic adaptation is, well, let's start here. When you lose weight, uh, your body becomes smaller. There's less of you physically. So there's less tissue uh, less metabolically active tissue. So we would expect that as you transition from being a bigger person to a smaller person, you are going to burn fewer calories per day. There's just less tissue that needs to be kept alive and, and doing active things. Um, now, where metabolic adaptation comes into play is the fact that we've observed in several different research scenarios that when an individual loses weight, in many cases, their energy expenditure will actually decrease more than we would expect. So we expected that as they lost fat mass and some degree of lean mass, certainly we expect that their energy expenditure will drop to some degree. But what we notice is it actually drops more than we can explain by the loss in body mass alone. And so it's called metabolic adaptation because this is an adaptive process. Um, you know, your body as a biological organism doesn't have that many priorities. Uh, certainly, arguably, the top priority uh, is, is making sure that there's enough energy to sustain life. And so you can imagine that as we start to restrict our energy intake and as our stored source of energy, body fat, becomes reduced, it would uh, be very intuitive that our body would have some type of mechanisms in place that when it seems as if energy is scarce, we can constrain our energy expenditure, um, essentially uh, hoping to make sure we can sustain life in the long term. Okay, so it's, it's kind of like a survival mechanism. I, yeah, I, I think you could view it that way. Okay, um, so in, in the context of dieting, um, a lot of people may also have heard of the term metabolic damage. Um, and that's kind of been Banded about as like a, some scary boogeyman that people need to be afraid of and that, you know, if you drop your calories too low, um, you're going to get the metabolic damage and um, it's going to mess up your diet. What is metabolic damage any different from metabolic ad adaptation? Are they the same thing? What's going on there? Um, so the thing about metabolic damage is that it's exclusively a fitness term and not a term that you're going to see in any scientific literature. So any, any definition that you assign to it is a little bit arbitrary. Like you, you can't go to the science and say, what is the definition of metabolic damage? Because I've never seen one. Uh, but but if, I think a, the most common definition of metabolic damage is that it is uh, to some degree a permanent, uh, a, a permanent, uh, instance of metabolic adaptation that persists long after uh, a person has restored their energy intake. And I've not seen evidence to suggest that that is a thing that happens. So, so you're saying, take one? Uh, so I was, I was saying, you know, metabolic adaptation absolutely happens. But what we see is that as we return someone to, uh, you know, as, as we restore the weight they lost and get them into positive or at least neutral energy balance, um, generally speaking, with enough time, all the things that we observed on the way down tend to be reversed on the way back up. Okay. So basically metabolic damage in the context of a permanent uh, 
adaptation to to uh, dieting is probably not a real thing. I, I don't believe so. That's not to say that there can't be some long-lasting ramifications of uh, of you know improper dieting practices if if you sustain uh, really really low caloric intake. Uh, you know, for a very extended period of time, obviously we can see things that last beyond the duration of that diet. So a great example of that is, uh, you know, when, when we look at instances of what used to be commonly called the female athlete triad, um, now they, they typically use the term um, relative energy deficiency uh, in sport. Uh, you know, we'll see long lasting ramifications when it comes to bone health. Um, so, so it's not to say that, you know, do whatever you want and there, there will never be a kind of a long-term consequence. Uh, but this idea that your metabolism is going to slow down and stay low forever, uh, there, there's really no, no support for that that I've seen. Okay, fantastic. I'm really glad you clarified that. Um, so we, we kind of understand now that metabolic adaptation is going to be, let's say, a slowdown in metabolism beyond what would be expected from just a normal drop in, in body weight. Why is that happening? What, what's the actual mechanism behind those changes in, in metabolic rate? Why is it slowing down more than we'd expect? Yeah, so the, uh, everything really, in my, my interpretation, everything really traces back to the hypothalamus. So the hypothalamus is a structure in the brain that is really the key integrator of information pertaining to energy expenditure and availability or intake. So the hypothalamus plays important roles in appetite, uh, it plays important roles in activity level, and it certainly plays a critical role in a lot of different hormones. Um, so all, most hormones that, that we talk about uh, in, the, in the fitness world, when we talk about you know, sex hormones, thyroid hormone, things like that, they all, they all kind of trace back to the, to the hypothalamus. And what we see in metabolic adaptation is twofold when we immediately reduce calories just in the short term. So like if my body is in an energy deficit, we will see that leptin tends to drop. Uh, at the same time, if I start to reduce body fat, the more that my body fat storage is reduced, leptin will continue to drop even more. And leptin is one of the key hormones that feeds back into the hypothalamus to indicate like, hey, leptin's high, there's plenty of energy around both short-term and long-term, we're all good. And, and it kind of maintains our ability to have normal appetite, activity level, energy expenditure, hormone production, all down the line. Now, due to short-term energy deficiency and long-term depletion of fat stores, leptin starts to drop, and that feeds back into the hypothalamus, and the hypothalamus perceives that as a famine. Um, your hypothalamus was developed long before any major grocery store chain was developed uh, by several years. And so what that means is the hypothalamus has no appreciation for the, fact, for the fact that you can just go down the street and get food. When you have low leptin and low energy availability, your body is like, well, looks like we're probably going to die um, eventually. And so the more extreme that gets – the more that you start getting into essential fat storage where you basically have no more fat to lose or the acute energy deficit is enormous, we start to see even more pronounced changes. 
Um, but, but that's pretty much what's going on. Uh, the leptin is going down. It's feeding into the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus interprets that as a pretty disastrous drop in energy availability, and that has effects on hormone production, on our activity level, and on our uh, feeding habits and our appetite. Okay. If we were to kind of dive into that a little bit further and say, let, let's say, look at some of the individual hormones, what happens um, in response to this drop in le leptin? What changes do we see in the levels of other hormones? And, and how does that kind of specifically affect um, the various aspects of like metabolism, as, as you mentioned, but then um, you also mentioned uh, food intake and our desire to eat as well? Yeah. So leptin has, has very direct uh, influences when it comes to the sex hormones and the thyroid hormones. Uh, so as leptin drops, uh, you know, female see a reduction in estrogen, male see a reduction in testosterone. Um, certainly as leptin drops, we start to see uh, less thyroid hormone production. So, um, and, and you, I don't know if you can attribute uh, the thyroid hormone stuff directly to leptin, but you can if you take it one step back and say, well, but the leptin goes to the hypothalamus, which then goes to, to in, into that whole uh, cascade of thyroid hormone production. So, um, you know, leptin gets to the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus has these effects on our activity habits, um, production of thyroid hormones. So our non-exercise activity goes down because of these endocrine changes. Um, in addition to, you know, with less thyroid hormone around, um, you know, our resting metabolic rate tends to take a, take a drop as well. Um, and again, these are drops that are, these are not related to the fact that you just have less tissue. These are actually adaptive responses. You know, we, we see uh, from this change in leptin that is feeding into the hypothalamus, we're starting to affect the sex hormones, the thyroid hormones. So uh, sex drive plummets hunger goes through the roof because of the hypothala hypothalamic control. Um, some of that is, some of the hunger is mediated to some extent by hormones. Uh, so when we're in this situation of low energy availability, we see ghrelin go up and we see insulin go down. And so those are things that are going to feed into those hunger issues. But if you look at the different uh, signaling pathways that relate to uh, the regulation of hunger, uh, it, it really goes, uh, th there's a whole mess of stuff going on in the hypothalamus that, that dictates our, our hunger and our feeding responses. So the thing that's, that's tricky about metabolic adaptation is because a lot of this has its root in the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus is a, it's a really influential brain center. It, it's not like some little cluster of neurons out in the periphery that's just not that important. It's, its effects are so widespread that they affect our, our sex hormones, are hormones responsible for energy expenditure or that at least relate to energy expenditure, uh, feeding habits, activity habits. It, it's a mess. Uh, <laughs> it's not good. So when we try to diet and when, we, when we're, we're, we've been doing it for a while and we've lost a, a lot of body mass and body fat, basically our leptin drops, um, it messes up a lot of our hormones we see this drop in activity, we see a drop in metabolic rate, um, basically a drop in energy expenditure. And we also have this opposing drive, which is we want to eat more because we feel like we're starving. Um, so basically everything that you wouldn't want to happen when you're trying to lose weight happens. Is that right? Correct. And, you know, as a bodybuilder, one of the things that's really catastrophic, you know, um, 
it's not fun to have low testosterone. And so obviously uh, libido just tanks uh, if, if you're getting really lean or in a really severe deficit. I, I should say if you're going from being uh, pretty overweight to like getting into a normal BMI category, like a BMI under 25, but well above 18, then, you know, you're probably, I mean, BMI, take it or leave it. But I just want to qu quantify when I say normal, I, like, I don't mean that in a judgmental way by any means. Um, but uh, they probably ought to revise that terminology eventually. But in any case, yeah, that, I'm yeah, sure I mean, they will. Well, because you say it, you say like when you get to normal weight and people think you're being a jerk and you're like, it's just the, the way that it's on the thing now. But, uh, but if you're going from the obese category to the normal weight category um, with fat loss as a male, actually testosterone might go up a little bit because there are some negative effects of excess adiposity on testosterone levels. But if we're talking about getting really lean, the, the thing that, that's tricky about that is your testosterone, testosterone tanks, so your libido tanks, but also that's not great for body composition either, having super low testosterone. So it's kind of a double whammy. Um, and, and we do tend to see in the uh, bodybuilding case study literature that uh, the loss of lean tissue seems to be uh, larger in males than females. Now, I don't know if we can certainly say that's a testosterone thing, but it, it's certainly uh, one of the very possible candidates for why we see that. Okay. Um, just out of curiosity, just because you are a bodybuilding coach um, and you, you know you do work with a lot of individuals in this field, um, you've, you, you are a bodybuilder yourself. Anecdotally, do you have any, let's say, interesting examples of how extreme metabolic adaptation in physique athletes can, can get. Sure, yeah. Uh, so here's the thing. There, now there's like a, a couple of us in the universe that are like bodybuilders and scientists. And if you look at like the journals these days, there's a bunch of review papers coming out where we all work together. We all chat all the time. So like I, I talk to Brandon Roberts and Eric Helms all the time. Um, and these are, uh, they're both uh, competitive bodybuilders with PhDs, uh, natural bodybuilders. And so me and Brandon and Eric have talked, and we are all adult men. And when we prep for bodybuilding, there's, I think all three of us have days where we have to get under like 1,300, 1,400 calories uh, to, to be on track. And that's not every day of the diet, but like, you know, it, it, it's not atypical. And so, um, yeah, like we're, we're talking about Eric Helms is a, is a big guy. So, like, if, if he's having days in his diet where he's eating under 1,400 calories, I don't care how many days it is. That's, that's, uh, that's a drop. I mean, that's a low caloric intake for a person that size. So, um, you know, I mean, you, you, never see, you never see cases of people who absolutely cannot continue their weight loss. So that's a really common misconception that I try very hard to fight. People worry about metabolic adaptation as if it's insurmountable or if you get it, you're screwed and your prep is over and you're just not going to do well. And that's never the case. I've, I've never seen a case that extreme. And you can even look back to the Minnesota starvation study. There are images of the participants. And believe me, you will keep losing the fat until there's none left. And they did. Um, so th there's always a number that you can hit for caloric intake that's going to keep you moving in the right direction. But more often than not, in, in the extreme cases of metabolic adaptation, it's just a number that you're just not willing to do anymore. 
And again, I want to reiterate, I'm not judging whatsoever. Um, I'm not saying like, oh, you should be tougher and push through it. I mean, your, your body's giving you some feedback to indicate that this is not, not an ideal scenario. You know, like if you were to ask me, Eric, what's the best way to feel great and, and be just an image of perfect health? It's not being 5% body fat. You're having symptoms. Okay, so like I'm not going to shame somebody for bailing on their prep because they have medical symptoms. But unfortunately, I think at, at lower ends of body fat for most people, there are symptoms present. So if you're not interested in having those, then it, it makes sense to be like, you know what? I don't like this caloric intake. I don't like how I'm feeling right now. I'm, I'm out. Um, so, so there's no, there's no, like, I, I don't want to like uh, promote the idea of like being tough enough to induce medical symptoms. Like that's not a good thing. Like it's not a, like a macho tough person kind of thing to be like, you know what? my entire hormonal axes just shut down and I'm, I'm proud of it. But, um, but it, it's, yeah, there's extreme cases and uh, you know, and it, it's not, it, the thing that I want to impress upon people is it's nothing to be super scared of. It's manageable. Sometimes your caloric intake does have to get low though. And, and that's kind of part of the game. Just because you mentioned that um, the, the Minnesota starvation uh, study, um, I would like to add a caveat here that neither I nor Eric are uh, advocating for uh, starvation or attempts at starvation when it comes to bodybuilding, even if bodybuilding could in some aspects be considered or bodybuilding prep could be considered um, as controlled starvation. But um, that's a, a subject for, for another day. Um, yeah, I mean, you could, you could argue that essentially any caloric deficit is just a very cautious approach to controlled starvation. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And yeah, so controlled starvation is one of the most commonly used terms on uh, in social media these days. Fantastic. Um, you did you did mention there um, something about um, individuals of, and again, I'm saying this in inverted commas, um, of normal BMI um, or a more normal body weight um, having a slightly different reaction. And I wanted you wanted to know if you could elaborate a little bit on that, because obviously we've been speaking um, about meta metabolic adaptation kind of in the context of um, people who are getting very, very lean. So people who are doing bodybuilding prep. Um, but a lot of people who are going to be listening to the show um, might not be interested in getting that lean, but just getting from, let's say, uh, a state of higher body fat to a state of, let's say, normal body fat. So from, let's say, uh, either an overweight or obese BMI to a, again, inverse commas, normal BMI. Um, does metabolic adaptation happen in, in those examples or is it something people don't have to worry about? What do you think? So it does. Um, it does. Yeah. So the thing that we see, actually most of the metabolic adaptation literature is, um, is from people that are, that are dieting from, you know, again, I'm using just the technical terminology here from the overweight or obese category and losing at least 10% of their body fat or 10% of their body weight. And then getting into the kind of, Actually, I don't know if they always end up in the normal BMI category, but it's usually they start overweight or obese and lose 10% of their body weight, generally speaking, in a lot of that literature. And so there are studies showing that, yes, uh, leptin tends to drop uh, in those studies and, and remain low. And in those studies, the, uh, the reduction in total energy expenditure does tend to be a little bit more than we would anticipate. Um, so it does happen. 
but it's um, here's why it's not talked about as often is because while it happens, it usually doesn't happen to a degree that we have to be, um, you, you don't see alarming caloric intakes, right? So it's, it's, we're not talking about like for them to maintain a BMI of 27 after losing 10% of body weight. It's not like they have to be at like 1300 calories a day to do it. So it's present, but the ramifications aren't quite as extreme or they, they don't kind of jump off the page at you. And they're also not experiencing uh, a lot of the symptoms that come along with being at super low body fat. So like, even if we can say, oh yeah, the, the leptin did drop a little bit and it looks like me metabolic rate dropped a little more than expected. Um, when we see that, but it's not combined with extremely low thyroid hormone, extremely low sex hormones, low libido, endocrine dysfunction all over the place and an impossibly, insustainably low caloric intake, it's just a little bit less jarring. And frankly, it's not as, so like you got to think about what's the choice here. And so the reason we talk about metabolic adaptation and the symptoms that come with it so much is because we're talking about voluntary choices. Do you want to go from being very lean to extremely lean? And at, at, in that process, do you get to a point where you say the side effects are no longer worth it? But when we're talking about weight loss from, you know, getting into a healthier BMI category, the question is like, I mean, usually these side effects are all positive, you know, so you, I wouldn't even call them side effects, but it's like, while we did this weight reduction, um, you know, I got off my blood pressure medication, um, I'm managing my blood glucose better, uh, you know, maybe I, 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 so usually we see that the weight reduction going from uh, an obese BMI to a, a normal weight BMI the reason we're not as as worried about it or it's not as alarming in the research is because there's usually a whole bunch of positive stuff that happens with it. Whereas when you're going from, uh, when you're going from, you know, 15% body fat to 5% body fat, it's like, I always tell people like at the end of a natural bodybuilding prep, if you're lean enough, like, like I don't want to put it that way. Cause then it's like a challenge, but like there have been times in my own preps, again, not recommended, times in my own preps where I know if I went to a doctor and said, run a hormone panel, they would take one look at it and say, oh my God, what happened? Everything's wrong. And the reason everything's wrong is because everything's getting, it's all upstream to the hypothalamus. So everything's getting shut down. But when we look at the metabolic adaptation that we occur uh, in people that are not getting extremely lean, it may technically be present, but it's not quite as problematic uh, when it comes to the side effects we observe. Okay, but that, that, that was a really good explanation of that. Um, just with anything in, in, in physiology and nutrition um, or fitness, there's always a bit of a, a difference um, between people when it comes to how they react to, to different things, be it exercise or be it diets. Um, does that same, let's say, variability exists when it comes to metabolic adaptation and just from kind of a practical uh, perspective, what kind of effects would, 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 would that cause? Yeah, there's certainly variability. And one of the interesting things is that there's variability in both directions. And so what I mean by that is there's really good research showing that let's say we intentionally overfeed you. So it, we're, we're bulking you up on purpose. There is 
a substantial, really significant amount of variability between the people who readily gain weight and the other people who they just increase their energy expenditure really, really high and their body weight doesn't change much. And so there's a spectrum there where, where some people have a, an adaptive increase in energy expenditure when you overfeed them. And I would suspect that most of the people that we consider hard gainers that are like, I've tried everything to gain weight and I can't do it. And you're like, ah, you're lying. Like you're just not eating. Some of them are eating. I, I think the people that are, that are considered hard gainers are people who have a very robust adaptive response to overfeeding where they increase their energy expenditure a lot. I also think that they probably have very, very tight control of their appetite. So I think once they're in an energy surplus, their, their brain centers controlling appetite immediately say, we're done. We're completely fed. And, and it's like the second they try to overfeed, their energy expenditure is through the roof and they're full now. And they just can't get an, another bite down. I would expect, and, and research would indicate, that we see very similarly a great deal of variability on the way down as well. Some people, you remove calories and they just lose weight. Other people, you remove calories, they have a robust adaptive response to that. They constrain their energy expenditure significantly, and, uh, and you have to remove more calories. Um, now, you, you'll always stay ahead of them. Like, I mean, it's not like there's nothing you can do, and the more you pull the calories out, the more they adapt, and you just never make any progress. It's just for some people, you have to pull out more calories than others, all things equated, um, which is not fun. You know, nobody likes to be that person that has to pull out more calories. But I would, uh, I would caution you from thinking the grass is too much greener on the other side. So there are people like uh, I've I've heard that Alberto Nunez is like this. Um, I, I could be just making that up. I'm I'm pretty sure I've heard that. But he gets extremely lean. But I think he still diets on relatively high calories compared to most people. But it doesn't matter. Like he's dieting on higher calories because his body's burning more calories. So he's still just as hungry. Uh, he still has the same, I, I would imagine, I don't want to speak for him in, you know, in terms of his symptomology or anything, but I would imagine that he feels, and, and if you talk to people, regardless of how many calories they eat when they're at the end of bodybuilding prep, everybody basically feels the same way. It's just some people feel like crap on 1,400 calories, and some people feel like crap on 1,900 calories. But uh, at, at the end of the day, it's the thing that really makes us uncomfortable is uh, Tanya Miller just said he's my coach. I can confirm. So, yes. <laughs> uh, but so everybody feels like crap when, when they're that lean. It's just a matter of do you feel like crap on very low calories or on slightly higher calories. So. Um, it's the energy imbalance. It's the mismatch that makes us really uh, uncomfortable. And that mismatch either comes from having like no body fat left or having a huge caloric deficit on a day-to-day -day basis or both. So basically it's going to suck either way. Yes. From, yeah, a, yeah, so, from a, subject, a subjective perspective. Yeah. The, the, only, the only time that I will say, obviously it'd be better if you could have more food. Um, and one of the reasons that's better is just because, like, sometimes when the calories get really low, you're like, man, I don't – this doesn't look like a very complete diet anymore. Like, in order to make the macros work, it's hard to get all the micronutrients I need. It's hard to get all the fiber I need. In order to, to meet my protein intake, I have, like, barely any fat or carbs left over. Um, like, I remember there was a time in my most recent prep where 
almost all, essentially all of my intentional fat take that wasn't just residual fat that was present in my protein and carb sources. It was basically all fish oil because I was like, my fat intake is so low. If I'm not taking a bunch of fish oil, I'm not going to get my essential fatty acids in. Um, so that, that's why where it sucks is when you, you start getting so low that you're like, I need to make some hard decisions about how to make sure that this is a, what we would call a healthy human diet <laughs> that can, that can support, uh, a human life essentially. And I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but you start to get to a point where you're like, man, I'm taking a lot of stuff out of here that is just kind of supposed to be there. Yeah, it's, it's some like seriously hard calorie budgeting at that point, you know. Um, exactly. Yeah. When you're eating 4,000 calories a day, you've got your vitamin C, period. <laughs> like it's, it's there. I don't know what you're eating, but it's there. Unless you're, unless you're on a pure carnivore diet, it's there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, when you start getting to like 1,400, you're like, how am I going to make this work? This is tough. Absolutely. Just on that, be careful with the, uh, the carnivore comment because they will attest that uh, you can get all the vitamin C that you want from that diet. Maybe if you're, if you're eating it raw. Um, we'll not get into that because I just don't want anybody, uh, you know, throwing a brick through my window later on tonight. Um, yeah. One, one thing that we kind of hear about a lot with metabolic adaptation, and especially when it comes to uh, metabolic adaptation in physique athletes, is the use of refeeds to potentially counteract some of those um, decreases in metabolism. Um, could you give us a little bit of background behind why people might consider that to be a useful approach? Yeah, so the refeeds, I think, are a very interesting strategy because uh, we, we've talked about how leptin is kind of the scapegoat based on our current understanding of how this all works. Um, so leptin seems to be dictating a lot of the stuff that we hate and so it, it would make sense that any kind of solution would be leptin-related. And I mentioned that leptin, obviously, it drops as fat cells shrink, but it also drops in response to short-term uh, energy restriction and more specifically short-term carbohydrate restriction. And so what we know is that if you acutely increase your carbohydrate intake, you will have an acute increase in leptin levels. Now, the question is, how much is enough, right? So like if I have one high carb meal, my leptin might go up a little bit for a short amount of time, but it's probably not, you know, if I have reasonable leptin levels for like 3% of my month, that's not, it's not going to be enough to really do anything, right? So and I just threw that percentage number out there from the middle of just, just grabbed a number. But what I'm getting at is if leptin is spiked, but not for a meaningful amount of time and not to a meaningful enough degree, it's probably not going to work. And so the question is, how much, uh, in, how much of an increase do we need in terms of refeeds to actually make an, an impact on this stuff? I think uh, based on the current literature, it looks like at least two days uh, of overfeeding in a row are probably the ideal scenario. I'd say you're probably safer with three than with two. Um, and, and again, with the refeed, the way you would structure that is you would basically make your fat intake as low as would be tolerable. Um, some people even drop their protein just a tiny bit to try to squeeze in as much carbohydrate as you can without causing a huge, huge energy surplus. You might want to go a little above maintenance, uh, but, but you don't want to, you know, just 
overfeed and, you know, put on a bunch of fat and then say, oh, great, my energy expenditure is up, but I just took two steps backwards. So usually two to three days of either eating at maintenance or, I mean, for a refeed, you'll probably need to be a little bit above maintenance uh, with low fat and with high carb. We know that that affects leptin, but the question is, does it affect leptin enough? And I think one of the most interesting approaches that is currently getting researched more is it's kind of like uh, an extended approach to refeeding, and the term that they use is diet breaks. And one of the cool things about diet breaks uh, is that with a diet break, it's actually it, probably the most compelling research on diet breaks has used actually a two-week duration where caloric intake was increased for a full two weeks. Um, and, and what they found was that, you know, they had two groups dieting. The study is called the Matador study. Um, and it's made the rounds on the internet. So if, if you bothered to tune into this, you probably heard of this already because it's very, very well known. But they did two weeks dieting and two weeks at, at maintenance. Um, so when we say diet break, it's not what it sounds like. It's not like, all right, go do whatever you want, come back in two weeks. A diet break in this context is just you're no longer in a deficit. We're going to bring you up to caloric maintenance. And so what they did was two weeks in the deficit, two weeks in, a main, in maintenance, on and off, on and off. And the other group just did a normal diet, just linear, stayed in a deficit for the whole time. What they found was that the, the approach of using periodic diet breaks uh, was more effective at attenuating the indices of metabolic adaptation that they measured, and it was a little bit better for fat loss as well. And so now we're in a, we're in a tight spot where a single-day refeed doesn't seem to be enough. A two-week maintenance period seems to be enough based on a single study, so we'll wait and make sure that gets replicated. Um, but the question is, like, what's the middle ground? Because I don't think everybody wants to do two weeks of dieting and two weeks of maintenance because instead of dieting for six months, now you're dieting for a year. Um, and that's there's some pros and cons to extending your, your dieting deadline by that significant of, amount, of an amount. You know, a 100% increase in the duration of the diet is not a strong selling point for most people. So I think, I think a one-week uh, diet break is kind of a nice middle ground that I've tried a little bit with clients. It seems to be pretty nice. Uh, a, you know, a little bit of a middle ground where we don't, we don't go much above maintenance, if at all, just kind of maintenance, maybe maintenance plus 5% or something, and just stay there for a week. Um, you know, drop fat a little, make sure it's very carb heavy. And, and yeah, I, th I think a one week diet break every three or four weeks might be a good compromise, but I don't, I don't have enough research to call that in an evidence-based recommendation at, at this time. Okay. Um, I suppose, so when we're talking about diet breaks and, and refeeds and things like that, you know, people do, um, kind of recommend, um, on top of that, you know, I, I've heard it said that people recommend, uh, a lighter or a lower, uh, less severe calorie deficit in the first place to kind of reduce some of the effects of that metabolic adaptation. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, you, you could, it could be potentially argued that those drops in, um, in metabolism are basically, uh, the extent of those drops is directly related to the degree of weight loss that somebody loses and the, the amount of fat mass that they lose as well. Um, so would it potentially just be 
delaying, if you're using a, a kind of a, a lower um, deficit or a smaller deficit, are you just delaying the inevitable? Um, and kind of at that point, would it be up to the choice of the individual whether they want to go harder on a diet or stick with a, a slower rate of weight loss? Uh, it's a good question. So um, there, there's certainly two inputs here when it comes to the, the magnitude of if not the adaptation, but if not that, then at least the side effects associated with it. Um, so we know that leptin is sensitive to both the amount of fat storage you have, but also the you know acute, uh, essentially, lack of energy availability. And so I, I think you can make a strong case that when, when we do more rapid reductions in caloric intake, even if we throw metabolic adaptation out the, out the window, we say we don't care whatever, things are going to adapt the way they adapt. When we, when we do studies with more rapid uh, approaches to caloric restriction, we see more unfavorable effects on uh, a variety of hormones. We see more unfavorable effects in terms of performance, and we see that a greater proportion of lean mass is lost compared to fat mass. So um, it's one of those things where you could debate. Certainly, we know that metabolic adaptation to some extent is affected by the magnitude of the deficit. I would suspect that a smaller deficit would be a little bit more favorable um, because, again, we're, we're basically just trying to uh, calm down the hypothalamus and say, chill, it's, it's, we're fine. What, why are you overreacting? Everything's fine. So the way you might do that is have maintenance calories for two weeks. And it's like, oh, no, yeah, we're okay. Um, and another way you might do that is to not have as huge of a deficit so it doesn't look to your hypothalamus as if you're starving to death. Um, but, but even aside from, from all that stuff, you know, we do have interventions comparing rapid weight loss to less rapid weight loss in trained people. And when it comes to the performance and the body composition uh, ramifications, uh, the slower rates of weight loss seem to be best. And I, I think, uh, you know, certainly, uh, I, I think right now the best recommendation would be aiming to lose a half a percent of body weight per week, maybe up to 1% per week when you start losing weight. And as you're getting down in, into lower body weights, you might even want to lean toward the lower end of that range. Okay. Um, just kind of while we're on that, are there any other, let's say, um, strategies that are supported by, uh, and we can go both both by the, the, the literature that's available at the moment and then the body of evidence that we have, and from your own experience as a coach, that um, besides the kind of slower rates of weight loss and the um, and the diet breaks that people can uh, apply to their own diets if they're if they are getting to, to lower levels of body fat to kind of help um, reduce those effects of metabolic ad adaptation. That's a good question. Um, so one thing I'm going to stand up because uh, a fun fact is that I destroyed my back in the gym recently. So. Ouch. Oh, okay. I'm up. Good. Um, all right. So one of the things that I'm a little bit adamant about when it comes to contest prep is I think a lot of people go crazy with cardio. Um, I'm not a big fan of cardio for a million reasons, but I think a lot of people are really eager to keep their caloric intake high. And so they go really extreme with the amount of cardio they're doing. And I don't think a lot of people realize, um, you know, we could take we, – we have a whole body of, of literature on endurance athletes in which just by throwing a bunch of cardio at them, their cortisol is through the roof, their testosterone 
takes a takes a big hit. It's essentially exacerbating some of the changes that we see with dieting anyway. Um, a, a, and those are athletes that are not in a severe caloric deficit. So we're kind of mag magnifying the effects of this caloric deficit by adding in these really, um, uh, really extreme amounts of cardio, which are also going to be cutting into your recovery from training. And there's some evidence suggesting that cortisol actually kind of counteracts the effects of leptin. They kind of have opposing effects on each other. So theoretically, you could, you, you could suggest that by increasing your cortisol to testosterone ratio with a ton of cardio while in a deficit, while impairing your training recovery, you're also probably limiting the effect of the, whatever leptin you're lucky enough to have present in the first place. So do I hate cardio because it's boring? Somebody left a comment like that. Of course I do. Cardio sucks. It's very boring. But I also hate cardio uh, for academic purposes. Now, I'm not saying you need to avoid it entirely, uh, but I will say this. A lot of times I'll get clients who sign up with me, and the first thing they, you know, the first thing they ask is, uh, where's my cardio plan? I say, it's in there. And they, they open up the tab. They're like, yeah, there's nothing in here. I go, I know. You're welcome. Uh, but so I, I have gotten uh, – and I, I'm not like the, the person who has like an exceptional metabolic rate. I'm not exceptionally lean year round. I'm not exceptional in any way possible. Um, my most recent bodybuilding prep, I did zero cardio. I just kept cutting calories and it was the best prep I ever had. The fewest side effects. The only side effect that really hit me hard was uh, very poor sleep quality. Um, that's a really common thing. I'm not, I'm not really sure if there's a way, a way around that when you're really deep in prep. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I don't, I'm not saying that people should do none, but I am saying you can do none, uh, and, and do just fine. And I am saying you probably want to do, uh, as little as you can get away with, uh, in, in terms of not exacerbating some of these hormonal issues, not like, that's the thing that kills me is like, you can overtrain someone very easily without weight training at all. Even if they're not in a caloric deficit, if you just throw a ton of running volume at somebody, you can overtrain them quite easily. Um, so, so yeah, I just don't understand the the bodybuilding um, obsession with with training as if you're a marathon runner in your free time on top of your actual training. That seems like a lot to me. Eric, uh, I, I thought I liked you beforehand. I genuinely do like you a lot more now that you've uh, you said that piece. Um, can I can I say one additional thing about that? Absolutely. Um, someone asked this question, which is a good thing. So I always talk from the perspective of a bodybuilder interested in performance. So someone asked, is there no uh, health applications of doing cardio if you're already weight training? Weight, weight training does not have the same favorable effects on cardiovascular health and physiology. Um, from a health perspective, you should be active. Okay, so weight training is better than nothing, but it's not a true kind of, I would argue it doesn't have nearly the same cardiovascular health benefits um, when you compare it like apples to apples. There is a role for, for some amount of cardio in your life, but you don't have to be a marathon runner. Like it, it can be as simple as making sure that you're not super sedentary, generally being active. And let's say you go on you know, a couple walks a week or like a walk a day. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be, uh, this really cumbersome cardio plan that you absolutely dread. Absolutely. I, I think it's also hugely important for people to, to understand the difference um, between 
the the principles that a physique competitor will apply to reach their goal and their goal is um to get as lean as possible while being as muscular as possible for for you know a show are those goals are not necessarily completely in line with what we would say constitutes a completely healthy diet um and in some cases when you get to to a certain extent they're they, they almost oppose it you know you're you're like you said you know people get to such low body fat levels that you know uh, like you said if, if a doctor looks at your hormonal panel he would say something is is wrong so it's it's i think it's important to make that distinction yeah and i, I mean uh I know I, I wrote the, the metabolic adaptation article on strongerbyscience.com and uh, Mike Israel shared it from Renaissance periodization. And on when he shared it, Spencer Nadolsky made a comment like this doesn't really apply to people that are, you know, obese or overweight uh, in terms of some of the ramifications on testosterone. And I was like, absolutely. I agree. You know, so, so a lot of times when, if I'm saying something and it sounds really stupid, it could be that I'm very stupid, but more likely it's that I'm specifically referring to a bodybuilding context and uh, it's such a unique, uh, unique scenario uh, for physique competition, trying to push the body into these uh, very unpleasant places that we, that we try to go with, with bodybuilding and physique sports. Absolutely. Eric, this has been an absolutely amazing conversation and uh... I, I could literally keep going on asking you a million different questions, um, but I'm very, very conscious of uh, of your time right now. Um, just for anybody who might not be following you already, how can people um, find you and uh, follow you online? Yeah, so uh, I spend all my time online now, which is not a healthy thing to do. That's less healthy than bodybuilding, if you can imagine it, but I'm very easy to find. Uh, I'm mainly on Instagram. Uh, handle is at Trexler Fitness. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, the website is strongerbyscience.com. That's where we have uh, – we've got a podcast every Thursday. We've got articles. Um, and you can also find Mass through the Stronger by Science website. Um, but it's our monthly research review. And every month we review it, – it's me, Greg Knuckles, Eric Helms, who is Eric number two, and uh, Mike Zordos. And every month we review the 10 most interesting studies that came out in the field of really, if it has anything to do with strength sport, uh, nutrition, lifting, we cover it. Um, and it, it's awesome. I, honestly, it's a lot of fun. So like this upcoming, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to give previews. Last month I gave, uh, <laughs> you almost got the scoop. Last oh, month man. I did, uh, so it was only my third month uh, doing mass, so I don't know the rules yet, so I don't want to get in trouble. So last month I did, like, a, a great paper by Grant Tinsley on intermittent fasting, um, and we also covered uh, a review paper that looked at the effects of alcohol intake on recovery. So um, the thing that's cool about mass is that we review the studies that are important to us because we all lift and drink beer and stuff. So, like, if if – you're interested in it. We probably are too. And we very selfishly cover the things that we think are most important to us and our clients that we coach. Um, so yeah, the, the, the nice thing about it is that, you know, I mean, you look at Helms and Greg and Mike, like we all love training. We all love lifting. Uh, you know, we have some kind of competitive history in bodybuilding and powerlifting and stuff. And we've all published research ourselves. So um, I, I think we got a nice little group of people that, get together, we nerd out, we write, uh, 
write articles and, and try to make sure that they're as applicable and practical a, a, as we can make them. No, you, you guys, it, mass is, it's an absolute powerhouse of, of material. Like you said, you've got, you know, people who are practitioners in the sense of both being coaches and competitors themselves, as well as being academics and scientists. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's, I think it's something very, very unique um, in the industry. And it's great that, you know, you, you're part of that. Um, and then just on the competitive side, do you have any um, plans for uh, getting uh, back on stage? So my main uh, competitive goal right now is to acquire the ability to tie my shoes again. Um, so as I mentioned, I wrecked my back the other day. And uh, it was probably like three weeks ago. And then a few days ago, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm ready to go do some rehab type training. I made a very bad miscalculation. <laughs> it's way worse. So oh, no. um, the good news is I can comfortably sit and stand. It's just transitioning from sit to stand is pretty brutal. Um, and I can't tie my shoes. I haven't tied my shoes in like three weeks. But uh, so let's deal with that first. Um, I do want to gain some, some mass before I compete again. Um, I'm at the point in bodybuilding where I have to compete pro now and the pros are really big. (laughs) (laughs) Like at at the amateur level, like I could get by just by like getting really lean and be like, Hey, I'm pretty lean. Isn't that cool? And at the pro level, it's like, Nope, everybody's lean, but now they're also pretty huge. So I'd like to probably gain a good, a good 10 pounds of, of lean mass before I do another cut. And oh. I think I could, I, I really do. Um, the last time I prepped was not an intentional prep until the end. Um, and that sounds probably sounds stupid, but I didn't intend to compete. I just kind of felt flabby and was like, I'm going to get in shape. And then the weight was just coming off really easily. So I was like, eh, might as well do it. Uh, but I didn't have like a, a set bulk going into it. So I, I feel like I could easily increase my stage weight by a good, a good seven, maybe 10 pounds if, if, I, if I push it really hard. But the problem is if I push it really hard, I do stupid things and get hurt. So I need to uh, try to restrain my, my enthusiasm. And, and uh, it sucks because I, I always tell my cl- like I can coach my clients not to do stupid things, but I can't coach myself, myself to not do stupid things because I'm like, I know what's good for them. But for me, I see the weight on the bar, and I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'll do that." And it's it's just not a good plan. I think I think it's an all too common problem with anybody who lifts weight. Um, it's like, yeah, you look at it, and you're like, "Yeah, I can I can do that," until you can't. Yeah, I I need to just like I need to have Greg just confirm all my stuff. Like, not even coach me, but just tell me to stop doing stupid things so I feel accountable. Because uh, yeah, I I just keep getting myself in trouble, but. I'll be all right though, but yeah, I'll, I'll compete again. But I want to put on a, a whole bunch of whole bunch of muscle before I do that. That's fantastic. Well, before that, we we want to kind of wish you a, an absolutely speedy recovery, um, so you can tie oh, your I'm shoelaces fine. again. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate it. But I, I'm I'm totally fine. <laughs> um, Eric, thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, I really, really appreciate it. I think everybody who's listening got a lot out of this, um, and hopefully, we'll be able to get you on sometime in the future because, like I said. There are so many more things that we could potentially speak about. Um, so thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thank you, everyone, who, uh, who tuned in. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. Um, if you did, please, please, please leave a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps spread word of the podcast to new listeners. Uh, if you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at b underscore more underscore nutrition. I'd also love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast, so please feel free to comment on the podcast post or send me a message directly on Instagram. I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.